You probably remember the moment. Dr. Alan Grant, paleontologist, steps across a field in Jurassic Park and falls to his knees. He can barely speak. It was 1993. Nobody had seen such a realistic dinosaur before. The guy on screen did exactly what the audience did and gaped at that marvel and asked, How did you do this? In the movie, Grant is told some pseudoscience mumbo-jumbo. But in reality, those dinosaurs were brought to photorealistic life thanks to a technical breakthrough in the world of 3D graphics. A new breed of supercharged machine capable of processing computer graphics like never before. I'm Saranya Barak, and this is Command Line Heroes, an original podcast from Red Hat. This season, we've been tracking the lives and inventions of heroes who never quite got their due. Men and women who changed our tech reality, but whose names don't often appear in the history books. Heroes like the brilliant computer scientist whose work brought those dinosaurs to life on the silver screen. This is the story of Silicon Graphics Incorporated, the high-performance hardware and software company that revolutionized not just the movies, but a whole arena of graphics, shaking up our ability to model cars, to drill for oil, and even to plot a course to the stars. But our story begins with a student at Stanford University who was literally dreaming of taking flight. Mark Hanna was a promising electrical engineering grad student at Stanford with a PhD fellowship from Bell Laboratories. But he was unsure where to apply all that talent. One day, he was talking with a professor about his desire to build a flight simulator. I did want to be a pilot at some point and thought about it when I first came to Stanford and was fascinated by flight simulators and wanted to have my own flight simulator in the basement. And so that was part of my interest in 3D graphics, and in particular, you know, real-time 3D graphics. That dream didn't really have wings, though, because back then, in the early 1980s, a flight simulator was a multi-million dollar machine. Still, the mention of graphics got him an introduction to someone down the hall, a new professor by the name of Jim Clark. Clark had a dream of his own. He wanted to revolutionize 3D graphics. And he was looking for bright young students like Mark Hanna to join his team. But this wasn't just an academic pursuit. Upping the computer graphics game could, potentially, be big business. Computing power was racing forward, and somebody was going to figure out a way to apply that power to graphics. My name is Rocky Sayed. I'm a visual effects artist and a senior lecturer at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. We asked Syed to help us track the evolution of graphics by describing the history of special effects in film, since that's where most of us saw that evolution take place. 2001 Space Odyssey is really important is because Doug Trumbull, the VFX supervisor on that film, was really interested in um, building upon what he what was called slit scan technology, and so he built this machine, which was probably made out of bespoke IBM computers. It was as big as a room. It was thirty feet by thirty feet, and it was a giant machine that was that they they ran for months in order to get what came to be known as the the famous Stargate sequence. 
2001, a space odyssey set a new bar. And six years later, in 1977, Star Wars pushed that bar even higher. The Star Wars team delivered deadly blasters and jumps into hyperspace using a system that included microprocessors. But there was still no actual software involved. It was all controlled by knobs and wires. It was a pretty good result, but it kind of set the stage for something that has sort of um, haunted and propelled motion graphic, uh, computer graphics and VFX ever since, which is that George Lucas wanted more. He wanted to go further. He knew that he wanted to make films not with tens of visual effects shots, but hundreds of visual effects shots. And so he needed a motion control system that could deliver shots at scale and consistent results. That drive to put on screen what a filmmaker envisioned was emblematic of a much greater desire. Movies were just the most obvious field. There were a hundred other industries where our ability to picture things through computer graphics was just as crucial. Jim Clark over at Stanford saw that opportunity and wanted to jump on it. He knew that if he could be first to market with the machine that brought those visions to life, well, there was gold in those 3D hills. Mark Grossman, a co-founder of Silicon Graphics, who today is a principal architect at Microsoft, remembers how ready the graphics world was for an upgrade. Back then, the typical workhorse computer was a deck fax, which was all of one MIPS, right? One million instructions per second. That was like the benchmark. Um, and of course, today's self, you know, smartphone can do like 20,000 times that in your pocket. So, um, but back then it just, you just didn't have the, the compute power. Um, so yeah, things were just expensive. Jim Clark's solution for a more powerful and also more affordable machine was something he called the geometry engine. When Mark Hanna walked down that hall at Stanford and knocked on the professor's door, it didn't take long for the ambitious Clark to realize this was someone who could help him bring that geometry engine to life. Mark Hanna explains the scope of what they wanted to build. It's a a chip and an architecture. It's a multi-processor architecture. So you have several copies of this geometry engine chip arranged in a pipeline, each one connected to the next. And it's performing the mathematical calculations that are required to take a 3D description of objects and their placement within this virtual environment and mapping that onto a screen representation. And there are kind of three major steps associated with that a set of transformations of the vertices. These are sort of polygonal representations, generally triangles. And um, you have to map the vertices into their position in this virtual world space. That second step is to clip out the parts of the image that are outside of what the camera would be seeing. And then the final step is to map that clipped version of what you're viewing into the 2D screen space. There's a, a scaling to the screen dimensions, screen coordinates, and um, 
a perspective division so that there's, you know, the things farther away look smaller. Those are kind of the three major steps in this geometry pipeline. What Jim Clark and Mark Hanna were creating would be the first VLSI, Very Large Scale Integration, applied to a geometry pipeline. The original geometry engine had about 40,000 transistors that had to be integrated into a single device. If they succeeded, it would supercharge the mathematical operations that make it possible to display and manipulate 3D graphics. And they dramatically bring down costs at the same time. When I started working with Jim, this idea of system designers doing custom chips was just starting to happen, which meant that you could design a custom chip that performed a lot of the functions that previously required multiple chips and some expensive chips. So in volume, you could get the cost of things down and still provide very high performance. And so that idea of doing custom silicon as opposed to just putting together standard off-the-shelf chips was, was really critical to bringing down the cost of this computing. At the time, government agencies like DARPA would fund those in academia to pursue projects like this. And then, innovators like Clark and Hanna were free to license their products and spin off lucrative businesses. At some point in our work on the geometry engine and what we call the smart image memory rasterization, Jim came to me and said, you know, I want to start a company based upon this technology. The thought had never really crossed my mind, but I was certainly interested in delivering the technology to a wider marketplace. And um, frankly, my thought was, okay, this is exciting to work on. There's the potential to make a bunch of money. Not that that was my motivation, but I said, well, if, you know, if it doesn't work out, I can always get a real job. So, <laughs> so you know, basically the team that was working on this uh, DARPA-sponsored project to design the, these chips and to show a working prototype Jim, you know, pulled together the team and, you know, eventually we went off and started SGI. SGI, otherwise known as Silicon Graphics Incorporated. Mark Hanna became chief scientist and also the architect of their machines. Some co-founders, like Mark Grossman, had no idea how big this company was about to get. I had a girlfriend in LA at the time and and I told her, well, you know, my professor wants me to help out on this project and be back down in, you know, a year or so. And that uh, turned out not to be true. <laughs> I just didn't have the vision, I guess. Others, though, had a pretty clear idea that a lucrative 3D graphics revolution was now underway. When Fortune magazine caught whiff of this new company and asked Mark Hanna for an interview, he told them SGI would, in a decade, be making $1 billion a year. By 1983, Silicon Graphics had manufactured their first Unix-powered machines, and they'd begun showing them off to potential customers. But not everyone understood what to do with them. Tom Davis, another SGI co-founder, explains. A lot of the potential customers had no idea how they would use 
uh, a product like this, how, how they would use three-dimensional graphics. We did have one model, which was Jim Clark's old Volkswagen, and we, had, we could make a little wireframe Volkswagen twist around on the screen. So then we showed it to, I, I forget whether it was Boeing or Lockheed, one of those huge uh, aircraft companies, showed it to the engineers there, and we showed them our thing, and we had a little Volkswagen that we could twist around on the screen. And the engineer there said, wow, that is really cool. It's too bad we, use, we make airplanes, not cars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wait a second, this could be anything. <laughs> And, and it was this, this inability to see. Soon enough, though, everyone was seeing just fine. And it wasn't just airplane manufacturers or car manufacturers either. It was also NASA, which became SGI's biggest client a year after they launched. NASA purchased 18 of their Iris workstations. And, of course, it was also the movie industry. Through the movies of the 1990s, ordinary people came to understand that 3D graphics were evolving right before their eyes. My name is uh, Steve Williams. I go in the movies by Steve Spaz Williams as my movie credits. Steve Spaz Williams, as he's known in the industry, was the chief animator for Industrial Light and Magic in the 1990s. He was one of the wizards behind The Abyss, Terminator 2, and Jurassic Park. And if all that wizardry had a magic wand, William says it was those SGI machines. Well, they completely changed everything we were doing. Everything in the world of visual effects was practical. Rubber prosthetics and, you know, miniatures that were shot and composited onto the actual IP or the original interpositive or negative of the film. Inevitably, we ended up inventing creatures and scenarios and doing it digitally on a box and then scanning it out so there's no generation loss of film. Not only that, it freed us up to sort of experiment with the synthetic world that we were dealing with. We were not sort of held to the limitations of the practical world, like, you know, uh, equipment breaking, um, you know, uh, rubber prosthetics, you know, deterioration of objects. So from that standpoint, the entire industry had changed. Williams feels Mark Hanna's work on those machines, especially when combined with design software from Alias, was a bold leap forward, one that allowed others to push the limits of what was possible. There's a lot of these mavericks that are always looking at convention and questioning convention. You know, and I think, you know, Hanna saw a better way. And of course, they're seen as heretics, very much like I was seen as a heretic for trying to use a machine to build a digital creature. So, you know, one begats the other. <laughs> it's hard to remember just how groundbreaking it was when Williams wanted to use SGI machines to build those digital creatures. But for Jurassic Park, Williams actually had to convince Steven Spielberg that computer graphics were the best way to go. He was initially told he'd simply be adding motion blur to a bunch of stop-motion work. And I said, but why don't we just build everything in computer graphics, all the creatures? And everyone, oh, no, no, you can't do it. Impossible. So I was, you know, literally instructed by Dennis Muren, you know, the head visual effects, not to bother trying. I said, F that, right? I said, so I secretly started to build our T-Rex on my own time. And I did exactly what I did with the T-1000, which was I built a set of bones and did walk cycles. 
So I had a walking bone done in November of 1991, and I had it playing on a monitor when Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy and Spielberg and Lucas, all, they all came walking in because I knew I wasn't going to be allowed to show it. And they saw it, and they freaked out. And this is exactly what happened, and everything changed. Mark Hanna remembers that moment exactly. The T-1000 in Terminator 2, with all that liquid metal, was amazing. But it didn't need to look realistic. Those dinosaurs, though, were next level. Yeah, actually, we rented out. There was a movie theater across the street from where SGI was. You know, a bunch of SGI employees went over to watch watch the movie. And I remember one scene in particular. I think it was the velociraptors running through the kitchen or something like that. And, you're, you know, you're into the movie. There's all this tension and so forth. And at the end of the scene, it just struck me that like all those dinosaurs were computer generated and they just looked incredibly real. You wanted it to look like a real dinosaur and it really did. Jurassic Park was a tipping point. The 1990s rolled on with profound leaps in special effects, all powered by SGI's machines. And then in 1997, there was Titanic. Camille Salucci was the VFX producer on that film, and she remembers its profound impact. There's a pullback shot from, um, from you're on the deck of the Titanic, and you see people walking, and we pull all the way, all the way back to the ship being a tiny ship on this vast ocean. And that shot was... Uh, was a combination of technology that was unheard of at the time, one of which is the digital water. And, and that also wouldn't have been possible without the compute power of SGI machines and what SGI machines inspired at the time. We would populate that entire ship by people walking around that looked real, but were in essence CG doubles. And that would not have been possible even a few years earlier. We were, we were breaking everything to try to make it work. Salucci's team was pushing the limit, but they had also been given more to work with. She describes a positive feedback loop where earlier successes led to more support for special effects. The earlier work in CG, things like The Abyss, things like Terminator, started to have the studio executives see their box office ramifications for great visual effects work. And so seeing, seeing box office um, increases as a result of, of visual effects was something that then allowed us to have bigger budgets. Suddenly, investing in 3D graphics was a pretty sure bet. And that meant everybody needed an SGI machine. Remember that prediction Hannah made for Fortune magazine? A billion dollars a year? Well, one decade after they launched, Silicon Graphics made that billion. Waves of competitors were nipping at their heels. Companies like Sun, HP, and Apollo. But SGI was the behemoth in the field. By the mid-90s, they seemed untouchable with thousands of employees on several continents and an 11-building headquarters in the heart of Silicon Valley. But then again, even T-Rex seemed indomitable before that comet came crashing out of the sky.
I've always been driven by value, let's say, providing maximum value for minimum cost. Maybe I'm just cheap. I don't know. <laughs> Mark Hanna's breakthrough using the geometry engine to lower pricing so that more customers had access to enormous computing power had created a heyday in film. There were moments in the 90s when the liquid chrome T-1000 first appeared in Terminator 2, when those dinosaurs barreled their way through Jurassic Park. Those were extraordinary film moments that leapt ahead of audience expectations in a way that hasn't really happened since. But SGI's role as this kingpin of graphics couldn't last forever. As PC-based graphics cards improved and chips got faster and faster, SGI's business model weakened. Cheaper options wooed customers away. Hannah saw that PCs were becoming more and more powerful. Meanwhile, SGI's high-end workstations, ranging from 50 grand to 200 grand, weren't going to be as attractive down the road. There would be no growth there. We needed to evolve into higher-end systems that were designed as servers where even for the graphics, you do most of the work in these modular servers and then you just send the, the, send the bits down the wire. Initially, at that time in the mid-90s, the enterprise networks, the local area networks used within companies was fast enough, I felt, that you, know, you could just send pixels down and centralize and you didn't have like issues associated with all these high-end workstations in terms of cost and, and maintenance and so forth. And then once wide area networks, of course, became faster, then you could move it further out of the enterprise. And I guess what is currently known as cloud computing, right? There's no need to, for these really expensive desktops. Strategically, I didn't think it was happening. And um, we acquired Cray. Cray was a supercomputer company that came with thousands of new employees. The gambit was huge, and SGI moved to stake a claim at the highest end of the market. It was a long way from the $5,000 entry-level machines that Mark Hanna was so proud of. Despite the shakeup, SGI's heyday was over. I think we missed our quarterly revenue, so things suddenly became very tactically focused and not strategically focused. You know, I felt that we were at the start of a death spiral that I, I was powerless to stop. Jim Clark was also wary of the rising PC market and its ability to take over from SGI workstations. He made his exit in 1994. As for Mark Hanna, well, he saw the writing on the wall too and left Silicon Graphics in 1997. He took with him 13 patents for work on graphics processing, pixel mapping, and texture mapping. And he was right about that death spiral, by the way. Maya, the 3D software, was released one year later. And other companies kept reaching up, offering some of what Hannah's machines managed at lower prices. SGI's monopoly continued to erode. And on April Fool's Day, 2009, they filed for bankruptcy. These days, Hannah has taken that drive for lower costs in the virtual world and applied it to some very concrete realities. He's been obsessed with imagining high-density, low-cost parking lots. And next up, he's heading back to the corporate world, joining the company NVIDIA, 
which not coincidentally has been celebrated for inventing the GPU. And there I'm going to be working on, again, this passion of mine of driving down the cost of things, um, sort of pushing their uh, embedded technologies into the education market and um, sort of asking the question of how low can you go in terms of getting the price of this high-performance technology into the hands of more people. Bringing super-powered computing to the masses is the work of a lifetime. Along the way, Hannah hopes he's been an example for underrepresented minorities pursuing excellence in the tech industry. When we asked what advice he had for other Black engineers and coders, he hearkened back to that moment at Stanford when Jim Clark presented an opportunity to hop into a burgeoning new field. Yeah, exposure and knowing what's available is an important part of trying to figure out where you want to go. So don't limit your options and be open to sort of a change in direction and and doing some new things. If you decide you want to go off and take the entrepreneurial route, start a company, you know, don't try and do it yourself. Get at least a couple of other people that have a passion about the same kind of thing. Maybe have complementary skills. Multiple heads, multiple perspectives are always a good thing. And go for it. The story of Hannah's career is a story of imaginative visions realized. The right team at the right moment can bring what was only hypothetical to life. It's important that we remember how extraordinary Mark Hannah's contributions have been. I mean, they are literally titanic. As in, James Cameron's Titanic would not have been possible without Mark Hanna. And you know, he was extraordinary in more ways than one. A few months after Hanna left SGI, a survey from Fortune magazine of 49 Silicon Valley companies found just two black individuals among their 364 board members. So, Hannah's position as a black man with authority at a company so influential as SGI was extremely rare. He was a computer scientist who helped the whole world visualize the extraordinary. Yet he himself was barely visible in his industry. You can find lots more information on the geometry engine, Mark Hannah's story, and the evolution of 3D graphics over at redhat.com slash heroes. Next time, we discover the pioneers of collaborative software, working decades before Google Docs and shared calendars. I'm Saranya Barak, and this is Command Line Heroes. Keep on coding. Hi, I'm Jeff Ligon. I'm the Director of Engineering for Edge and Automotive at Red Hat. I'm really passionate about bringing open source innovation to edge computing. There's so much potential out there and so many different devices and use cases, from cruise ships to in-store kiosks to factory floors, from cell towers to literally outer space. No all-in-one edge computing solution could possibly handle every operational or technical challenge. So edge needs the interoperability of open source. It needs radical collaboration with partners and constant innovation from the upstream community. Red Hat's Edge portfolio brings all of that together with proven platforms that are consistent from cloud to edge so customers can support their most challenging use cases without lock-in. 
Find out more at redhat.com slash edge.